There are Lutherans, and then there are Lutherans. There are Lutherans who, if they lose an hour of sleep, uh, fall asleep, um, and, and just can't quite do it. Um, and then there are people like you, tough as nails, time changes don't mean anything to you. Um, you can get up, get the kids up, the kids are happy to do so. No, not happy to do so. Doesn't matter what time they go to bed, they're not happy to get up. But, well, today we're going to uh, do some things with Martin Luther again. Chapter 43 of, um, of Isaiah, if you would take a look at Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah 43. All right. How, um, how appropriate uh, is this chapter when we dealt in the, uh, in the sermon with the subject of fear? Uh, so let's take a moment and begin with a word of prayer, if that's okay. Dear Lord and Savior, we now begin to understand the whole theology of the cross because it is by the way that you actually afflict your church that the church comes to know itself as the church. It is by means of your affliction that we also come to recognize you. And it is through these afflictions that we actually come to be certain of our gift of everlasting life. So help us, we pray, to lift up our eyes to your passion, your suffering, your death, and ultimately to that resurrection that gives us all hope as your children. Guide us and bless us in our daily walk with you that we might be people of courage and conviction, that our fearlessness would be balanced by the way in which we truly, reverentially, and with awe fear you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is always a, a tough one to um, communicate to the kids in confirmation and maybe uh, even more so for adults, but we don't get to have adults stick around for two years every Tuesday night coming to confirmation. Um, and that is that whole, you know, whole idea of fear um, and the, how the Bible uses it. Um, fear um, it, it has its positive connotations, doesn't it? I mean, um, if we, for instance... Uh, walk up to the edge of a cliff. Uh, fear is what grabs us and pulls us back so that we do not even come close enough to be able to fall off that cliff. Um, fear is something that teaches us that fire is something that we have to be careful with. When we're out uh, doing campfires or whatever it might be, we don't want to burn down entire forests as like it happened to us up in northern Minnesota where 95 square miles uh, went up in flames because some guy didn't properly handle his, his uh, campfire. Um, fear, however, also has that connotation of, um, of awe and respect. And when we fear hurting the feelings of those like our parents, you know, we all remember growing up knowing that 
mom and dad had certain expectations of us and that we didn't want to disappoint them. And so that kind of kept us from partying with the rest of the kids. Uh, well, except for Carol. Um, <laughs> she laughs only because it's true. I know. It's, uh, it's <laughs> um, fear is, uh, is something that probably is, uh, you know, um, as we think about the awe and the respect that we might have that our parents are esteem. They're, they're, they look at us with esteem, and that esteem is something that we don't want to lose. Um, but I think, uh, I think uh, it, what Jesus is driving at, therefore, when he says fear God, is he, he wants us to be whole people. That is to say that the religion of the heart and the religion of the body, the religion of the soul and the religion of the outward man is unified. That there, that there is no conflict, no division, that in fact one feeds the other. And so just to use the illustration uh, in a sense of marriage, that when a man in his heart loves his wife, a man will outwardly do certain things for her that would become acts of love and acts of charity. It is not through the outward acts that the person actually comes to have a heart like this, but rather that sometimes even in the very action we... Um, we maybe even learn something more that the heart grabs onto, but you don't say, uh, you know, we, we used to say up in Minnesota, some of you can appreciate this, that there was a Minnesota farmer up there, a Norwegian farmer, who loved his wife so much that he almost told her. <laughs> They're a stoical crowd. Um, and, um, and so, you know, what do you say? I mean, if you love somebody, wouldn't you say it? But saying it doesn't make you love them. In fact, the worst thing in the whole world is to say it and to cover up the fact that you don't feel that way. And the same is true religion-wise. Well, um, we have this beautiful text from Isaiah. And, and if you look at these so-called questions that we have here, each of them corresponding with the response by Luther here, um, Let's, let's kind of walk, walk, them, walk us ourselves through this. But let me first read these words from Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Questions. Does the size of the church become, now this, sorry about this, I should say, uh, is the size of a church a measure of its truthfulness? This is going to be a question uh, that is raised as the fact that Israel, as a people, were this by comparison to all of these tribes, nations, and people around them. And as they raised, as this question was raised to them, do you look at yourself as a people and say we are small and we are insignificant? Does that mean that we are small and insignificant to God? And you'll notice that we have that question today too. Are, are, are we? Are, if you say, what are you? And you say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, what's your confession? I'm a Lutheran. But are you a Lutheran Lutheran or are you a 
Lutheran just in the generic sense. Well, I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran. Well, are you a Missouri Synod Lutheran in the sense that you are moving into American evangelicalism, or are you a Lutheran, 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 Lutheran? Uh, and we say, yeah, I'm a conservative, confessional, liturgical, Missouri Synod Lutheran Christian. Well, <laughs> pretty small group of folks in that category. Does that mean that we don't have truth? What does it mean to undergo trials? Uh, why would God put us through times of trial? And why would these trials come upon us? What gives to Christians the strength to be able to handle their trials? Well, we, um, we have to ask ourselves, where do we turn when it comes time to, to deal with these things, you know? Um, you know, some of you have had um, brushes with death. Uh, we have a member of our congregation who was on the, um, on the operating table, and he died. And he was brought back to life again by his doctor. And he wakes up and he says, why, what, what does this mean for me? What do, do I have a gracious God? What, where is my faith? Where is my convictions? And you come to discover that, you know, really what we call faith, it's not always something that is just, you know, kind of we have this, this like it's some intellectual assent. You know, like, um, I believe that 2 plus 2 is 4, and I believe that uh, Indiana is a state in the United States. I think it's like some fact. Or was faith actually this trust and reliance of the heart that doesn't come to the forefront until we are faced with the realities of our own mortality and our own weaknesses and our own failings and our own sins and God's judgment. And all of a sudden, you find out that there's something inside that comes out. Yeah. What's the reason for these trials? What is God trying to tell us? Um, what evidence do we have from our past that tells us that God is faithful to his promises to protect and preserve us? What does the love of God look like? If you have, I, I know that many of you were raised with good parents. Um, what, do, what did their love look like? I would imagine that that word fear became a vital component in your upbringing. Um, yeah. What should we do when our conscience feels as though God is far away? And that's an interesting word, conscience. We'll talk a little bit more about how Luther sees that. Don't our works and deeds count for something before God? I mean, come on, you guys. I mean, why else would we do them? Why can't the message of God's grace be heard by all? What, what I mean, come on. You, you speak God's word of grace, and it seems as though you're talking to a brick wall. Why? On what basis do we stake our claim to be in the right arrogant people that you are? Is God also in control of the ungodly world? Something to, um, to ask ourselves today in light of this craziness about ready to 
some absolutely insane dictator over in uh, North Korea is getting to be awfully weird, isn't he? And uh, I think one of those things is that you know sometimes that in his mind, when, when people are deified, when they become gods, God is eventually going to eliminate them. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, he's requiring a whole nation to idolize him. But it's, it's satanic is what it is. And Satan's intention is always to destroy life. Um, and Satan's intention is that if life is going to be destroyed, take as many people with you as possible. This is a person who would take his entire nation into death rather than give up on his so-called glory. Um, is God in control? ISIS, is God in control? Donald Trump, is God in control? <laughs> what changes were in store for Israel in this chapter? And what is the dangerous error that we must not commit in our relationship with God? That kind of sounds like a law note, but it's not. Um, let's uh, just uh, look at this text. We're, we're going to uh, let's read a little bit out of the chapter, so that uh, we can just kind of suck down on some of the wonderful comforts that this chapter has to offer. Let's let's read, for instance, um, chapter forty-three, verses three through five. Okay. Let's read chapter three, chapter 43, verses 3 through 5 together. Okay, you ready? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba for your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid. For I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. Yeah, now that's um, verse 10. Um, let's, um, let's read that from 10 through 13, okay? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reserve uh, the? Um, it was in interesting. I just, you know how it is that you, that you, when you turn on the TV, you don't know who was on that TV before you. Um, in our household, since there are only two of us now that are living at home, I'm pretty sure, certain I know who the other person was. <laughs> but um, there was this thing on uh, TV about an archaeologist who was over in Israel, and they said the amazing thing about these early Israelite settlements um, 
any time they believe of David and such, uh, is that there are act, there are no effigies. There are no, um, you know, sometimes the um, the pagan religions around them had uh, deities. They had animals. They had various other things that they would put up in the pillars of their of their buildings and such because they essentially were worshiping these other gods. Uh, Israel did re, uh, refused to put, make any other um, symbols or, or visual symbols of, of things that would be construed as being idols. So everything was very plain and simple. Um, the, uh, the amazing thing the archaeologists said is that there's such a contrast between Israel and the uh, nations around them. They, they only had one God. And you could not and would not put that God into any sort of visual form. Um, we, uh, we say, well, why, why would that be important to us today? Well, the I think the idea has been that there have been many people who have said or thought that Israel kind of evolved in its understanding of who this God was, that they maybe started off being kind of you know, worshiping some local deity that was kind of connected with some rock someplace, and eventually it went off to, well, we've got a God who's actually the God of everything. But all the way from the very beginning, from the very start of creation, there's only been one God, and Israel has always proclaimed that. That was the truth. So it's very different from the relig religions of the world around them. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's back up. And, uh, and ask this question, does the size of a church, is the size of a church a measure of its truthfulness? Luther, and this argument is in place against the objection of the papists. That's the word that he uses for the Roman Catholic uh, apologists. The whole world is wrong, but you are the only wise ones. There, he says, we must firmly believe because we have God's promise as we have it here. So it was in the primitive church. It was a handful of people, a fistful of dough, hardly one little biscuit in a whole bakery. You see how Luther has such vivid uh, imagery that he uses. Um, this smallness of the church is the supreme offense in the world. Do you think you are the only ones who count, they say? Here there must be an apostolic faith against this offense. Therefore, the prophet consoles the church with these grand words, do not be offended. While Christ was hanging on the cross, the church was practically nothing. As David says, Psalm 62, men of low estate are but a breath, men of high estate are a delusion. Um, the, um, uh, somebody put on Facebook the other day, uh, startling, uh, this Bill, is it Bill Mayer, Bill Meyer, Bill Mayer, the, the, the guy who is the kind of the sarcastic commentator guy, he was being interviewed by this guy who interviews all these famous people, forget his name too, um, but the, the, the guy was kind of pulling one of these um, well, you know, uh, Islam is, is, is violent, but Christianity is, is also. Bill Mayer, who, you know, you just, sometimes you just cringe at his, um, at his political satire and commentary. 
he tore into this guy and spoke about the incredible difference between Christianity and Islam. And basically just, I mean, the guy was just stuttering as he tore him apart. Uh, this is uh, th this idea that uh, our religions are equal, but different pathways to the same God. Uh, you can look at Islam, and now we, of course, want to be able to have uh, Islamic studies, and we want to be able to make sure that uh, Muslims have equal rights in America. Really? Equal to Christianity? You're going to behead people? There were, what did they say? That there, how many people have been beheaded in Saudi Arabia just in the last year alone for whatever minor offenses that they might have? That 80% of all Muslims think that there should be stoning as the punishable offense for adultery? That, and so on and so forth. Uh, you have you have in Islam something that inherently is attempting to destroy whatever people, whatever uh, If you have a country who does not have Islamic Sharia law as the law of the land, they can have no respect for your government. Now, uh, I, I think we all want to admit that as Christians, we're going to live in a society where we're not going to persecute anybody for having a different religion. But by George, we're not going to lie either. And just because we are small or we are insignificant in terms of the world, anywhere that we are, that doesn't mean that we are wrong. Our religion is a religion of God's word, God's grace, God's mercy, and it is something that I think that in some respects uh, proves itself to be who it is by the way in which it makes both ourselves insignificant at the same time that through the eyes of Christ that he makes us significant. Well, okay. Um, any thoughts about that? All right. You haven't been watching the same programs I've been watching, apparently. Okay. Number two, what does it mean to undergo trials? Luther says, this is the church of God built on a solid rock, the rock of God's promise. No tyrant can uproot it. Because the godly are in the church, therefore they will remain, even though tyrants are raging. With their plans and schemes, they try hard enough. They want to burn them, choke them, put them under, and banish them. But this passage and promise controls their planning and attempt. Thus God protects his own in the midst of an ungodly man and preserves his church. We shall have the same experience. We have been called and chosen into the church by God, but we shall pass through waters and fires. There will be offense, but we shall be preserved. These are the promises given to the church. None of these trials shall do you harm. Um, the, how many of you were not in first service? Okay. Well, it's good to know we're going to have somebody at the second service. Um, it was a little thin today. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the text has to do with the, this a story about a man who went through trials and hardships. I won't tell you all the details. But you know as well as I do that when 
things are really, really tough, that's when the tough get going. Um, did, how many of you have played football? How many women have played football? <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, to think of what it is that we went through, uh, I, w I played football for two years for Concordia College in St. Paul. Not that we were all that great of a team. Uh, Dan Rosiniak played a lot better, more football than I ever did. But um, he's taller and stronger and smarter and all those things. He went to Vanderbilt, and I went to this little, what was it? Oh, okay, yeah, Villanova. It starts with a V. What the heck? You know, there's a <laughs> southern schools, you know, VV schools. Anyway, I went to the C schools uh, and the uh, Concordia. And... Um, and we had this we had this fullback who ended up actually um, uh, Dallas foot uh, Dallas uh, Cowboys uh, kind of picked him up at the end of the year, but he was about 220 pounds and he ran about a 9.8 hundred yard dash. He was fast. He was big. His name was Mike Bailey. And I was a defensive halfback, so when we worked out. They would throw the ball to the guy who was the guy on offense, and then they would put two dummies on either side here, um, and you had to lay down on your back, and then they'd throw the ball to the guy, and you had to jump up, and then you had to stop him. Do you know what it's like to have to stop a 220-pound big fullback? It just ground, gr they ground us into the ground. And... And we had, a, we had a bunch of guys who came out for the football team. And they were, they were guys, I'm sure, who could have been just absolutely fantastic. In fact, they were very athletic and so on and so forth. And after about a week and a half of this, they quit the football team. <laughs> they couldn't handle the grinding, killing. Wade Craigle and I, we were roommates. Uh, he was on the team, too, and he was, we were fearing this football player. Um, we woke up in the middle of the night, and, and I woke up, and I looked down. Of course, as guys, uh, our clothes were all over the floor. And I woke up, and I said, there are cats in our room. And Wade wakes up, and he goes, yeah, where did these cats come from? Well, they, we were delusional because we had been banging with our heads so much. Uh, uh, the... Um, but you kind of you develop a fairly decent football team by grinding everybody into the ground, and then when you come back up, you find out that these are the guys who've got it. Well, God does something similar to go all the way around to our spiritual application here. That God lays trials upon us. He puts us through the grinder. He uh, causes those 220 pound spiritual, unspiritual, ungodly people to come after us. And then he tells us to stand our ground. And we come to discover that if we stay, are staying, if we remain steadfast, if we are people who are unmoving, if we are willing to accept the cross or the trials or tribulations, we come to discover, hey, wait, there's something inside there that I didn't even know I had. And it's not me. Unlike football, I could maybe claim that. But unlike in, in spiritual life, 
we come to discover that God is there. That's what we come to discover. And as odd as it might sound, isn't this what ultimately gives us the comfort? If we can handle that, if we can remain Christians through that, that maybe we can handle almost anything that comes this way now. God is going to be with us. He's going to watch over us. He's going to protect us. He's going to defend us. He's going to take us through this. It's going to come to an end someday that he's going to, in the end, there's going to be a blessing that's going to come out of this which is far greater than all the things I think that I'm supposed to be giving up here now. We don't, um, we all have to face that, don't we? Okay, number three. What gives to the Christian the strength to be able to handle these trials? Luther says, and the, in response to this text, for I am the Lord your God, for that reason you will be preserved, not because you are strong and righteous, no, but rather because I am the Lord. So you say, can I do this? The answer is no. You can't. He can't. He is the Lord. Kyrios. Number four, what evidence do we have from the past that tells us that God is faithful to his promises to protect and preserve us? This is, of course, um, what does Paul say? All scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Whatever was written beforehand was written for our learning, that through patience, that we might be able to actually inherit this kingdom, that God is giving us the scriptures. He's telling us these stories of the Old Testament. He's telling us about what it is that he did so that we can actually say, yes, God does help his people. Look what Luther says. Why don't you guys just read it with me? Number four, this is the meaning. I am the God who of old protected you against all your enemies, first the Egyptians, then the Ethiopians, then Seba, whose people are also Ethiopians. I have put them all down. It is as if he were saying, don't you remember how I protected you and put them in your place? Where you should have perished, I cause others to perish in your place. And that's the promise that God makes. Now imagine, imagine what Luther is facing here. You sometimes have heard, you know, you kind of think that this guy Martin Luther, he kind of comes along, he starts teaching, he discovers something, starts standing for it, gets some opposition and such. Luther's anxiety was not merely that they were going to be wiped out by the imperial forces. I mean, there were people who were promising to Luther that they'd be able to have the, the, probably the manpower to probably even do a pretty decent job of withstanding some sort of an assault by these armies. What Luther was concerned about was that if he was wrong, the salvation of the souls of people would be taken from them. Imagine what it would feel like if you put yourself in a situation where millions and now in subsequent time, millions and millions of people got it wrong and consequently were not able to inherit eternal life. What if there were a purgatory? What if there was a way of being able to earn your salvation? What if 
the way of earning your salvation depended upon a certain institution called the Roman Catholic Church. What, what would happen if you broke from that church and thereby denied people the opportunity of being able to go through that portal, that door of the Roman Catholic Church into everlasting life? What if you were wrong? And you can see why it is that when you lay that kind of burden upon the souls of a person, he wants to make sure that what he is teaching is from God's Word. Now that, that is also something that uh, I think we should bear in our souls too. What, 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 do, you think, do you think maybe that old doctrine of Lord's Supper and baptism and that kind of stuff, do you think that that's just immaterial? Oh, we stood for that. That means a lot, but at the same time, it really doesn't mean that much. Therefore, as Lutherans, we really don't need to worry too much about those things. Ten commandments, ten suggestions. Are we worried about our children? Are we worried about whether or not they're going to become materialistic? Are we worried about whether or not they believe with all their heart in the Savior? We worry about those things. We pray about those things. Do we care about those things? You can see how it is that it's so easy today to just kind of let it all go and say it doesn't really matter. But if you stand up and if you say it does matter and if you start making this into an, uh, an issue and if you start fighting with them and start debating with them and care about whether or not your neighbors actually believe this stuff, and you're going to find out that all of a sudden the opposition does grow. And then it's going to be a whole different story. Yeah, uh, you better be right. We better be right if we're going to stand firm, if we're going to believe that what we teach and believe is right. Yeah. This is the meaning. I'm going to protect you, he says. Number five. What does the love of God look like? I love you. Read the next sentence with me. The opposite seems to be true. I do not love you. Okay. <laughs> See, when God loves us, it looks as though he doesn't love us. And if God doesn't love us, it will look as though he loves us. I have prospered. I have made my money. I am successful. I have no problems in my life. Everything is going along well. I find myself being well appreciated and loved by the world. What, are they, what does Paul say? Beware when, is it Paul? Beware when all, Jesus did. Beware when all men speak well of you, right? Beware now, do you and I find God's love in this way? He says, when conscience hears God threaten, it says you are God's foe and enemy. So the whole world gives expression to the opposite view. Yes, the enemies themselves are objects of God's love, not we. Under this cross, the flesh cannot believe that it is loved by God. The flesh says, love someone else also. And here the prophet says, do not judge yourself according to your feelings, but according to the word, because I love you by hating you. 
so you will be protected in supreme dangers. I don't think that there is any theologian who had a handle on this like Martin Luther. That God's love is manifested in God's discipline. The book of Hebrews. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son with whom he is well pleased. The word there is he uses the stick. How many of you don't dare today to spank your children? My dad didn't have that problem. <laughs> there was this thing called the stick. Now, my dad had two sticks. He walked with crutches. And everybody would say, hey, this is really great. Your dad walks with crutches. You could run away from him anytime you want. I said, no, my dad has six-foot-long arms. And he could hit you on the way out with that crutch, just on the way. Anyway, and then there was the other stick that was called the stick um, when you told your dad that he should go to hell. Um, <laughs> and uh, along with being, what's that stuff that you, they used to wash your mouth out with? Um, soap? Yes. Yeah, yeah. How many of you have known that before? Yes. It's almost like a confession of sins, isn't it? I mean, it's just, yeah, I've, I've been, I'm the soap, I'm the soap guy. Um, well, anyway, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son with whom he is well pleased. He is disciplining our flesh. He's disciplining our, our flesh so that our flesh doesn't gain the mastery over us. But, you know, I, I, we've said this time and time again. There's, there's nothing that, um, that we do that does not require some aspect of discipline. I mean, don't we have to exercise? Uh, now our country, in direct proportion to our country's lack of spiritual health, we're also an unhealthy people. We eat too much, we gorge ourselves, and we don't exercise enough, and our bodies are actually suffering now as a result of what used to be maybe a part of daily life. You know, you get out there and you milk those cows and you bring in that hay and you get out there and you hoe your gardens and you're plowing your fields behind a horse. For some reason, those people did not have the problem of overindulgence. Um, the, the, the Christian thing here is to recognize that God's love is present actually in our trials, in our tribulations, in our hardships, and the things that we go through. It doesn't mean all the time. It means that we, I, I call it the, the desert oasis effect. We go through the desert, and then we get to the oasis. And then we go through the desert, and we get to the oasis. And we go through the desert and get to the oasis. But you gotta go through the desert. And you gotta get to the oasis. But you will, and you have that promise from God. And with Israel, the rock followed them. So they had the oasis with them all the time. All right, let's continue on. Number six, what should we do when our conscience feels as though God is far away? This is related to kind of number five here. Since the conscience feels that God is very far away from us, it is necessary for him to say, 
I am with you. These are hidden words. It seems that God is against us and with our opponents because everything is going well for them. He uses the words, God, how do we know God is with us? Because he says it. That's what your parents used to say. For those of you who were raised in a barbaric world, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, then do it to yourself. Um, <laughs> number seven, question. Don't our works and deeds count for something? You know, as deep down inside, we think, you know, I don't know, I've, I've been a pretty good person. I don't understand why God is doing this to me. He says, thus Christ is our Lord and we are called by his name. Here, every form of one's own righteousness is rooted out. John, Peter, Augustinian, Franciscan will count for nothing. These are proper nouns. But Christian is a common noun which belongs to all believers. As many as believed and gloried in my name, these are the sons of God. So if we try to be able to come before God and say, hey, you know, you know, I, I, I've been a Christian all my life. I've, I've tried to be able to live my life according to your word. I've obeyed my parents. I have uh, I've gone into the ministry. Um, I've uh, devoted my life to you. Doesn't that count for something? And the answer is no. And you say, well, why is that nice? Why is that good? Because if that counted for something, then something would have to be done by me to get God's favor. It would become works righteousness. And in works righteousness, there's never any security or certainty. I asked, I asked the, uh, the confirmation kids, uh, my, exp my guinea pigs, I should call them. Um, I always <laughs> like to ask, don't, don't I ask, I ask those confirmation kids those questions. Said, um, say, um, you know, why do your parents love you? And I look at you like, like this. I said, why do your parents love you? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> is it because of what you do? <laughs> One-sided love from God. It's just, um, it's very hard for us to grasp. Number eight. Why can't the message of God's grace be heard by all or by everybody, right? Luther says, we have not created, formed, or made ourselves, but we have everything from God. You know that this is the controversy between the godly and the self-righteous, that either one considers himself to be cited. Uh, so the godly and the self-righteous, they think that they see, right? Therefore, he calls them the people who are blind yet have eyes. So John's gospel says, yes, uh, you have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you do not hear. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. They have eyes and ears are plenty, but they neither see nor hear. They have eyes. That is, there are masters and teachers. There are bishops but they are blind. They have ears. That is, there are many hearers, 
but these hear nothing. Thus, he sets forth a people contrary to the word, a people who will hear no one. Um, you know, the, uh, I think we all struggle with the whole question of, you know, if, let's just say, for instance, that you have an employee at work, and the employee maybe is going through a tough time, and so you go out and you get a certificate to Bub's uh, for a free meal, and you, you bring him this gift certificate, and the person looks at you and says, what do you want? And you say, it's just, it's just, just a gift. Just wanted to be able to give you a gift. And the person says, this isn't a gift. You want something from me. Or, I have earned this. This is something that I deserve. And you go, what's the problem here? The problem is, is that either the person is self-righteous and they feel as though that they've been working for you and you should have done this in the first place, or perhaps they are a person who might even be saying, is there some obligation now that I have if you're giving me? So they can't hear what you have to give to them. So Luther is saying, the reason why people can't hear the gospel, it's a free gift from God. It's a, a gift of God's love and his righteousness and his peace and forgiveness and pardon. Here you go. And they go, well, I should have received that a long time ago, and I believe and I deserve it. Or they look at it and they go, in what way are you obligating me now? They can't hear it. So uh, that doesn't mean that we, that we stop telling them, but it certainly means that, that we should not be giving them Bob's gift certificates um, unless they get down on their knees and beg. No, uh, okay, let's, uh, we got about 10 minutes here. Um, glad to see everybody showing up here at last. Um, how many of you came for church uh, for first service? <laughs> no, I mean, not many, how many came to first service, but how many came uh, here at church? Uh, uh, at 8.15 or 10.15 to go to, uh, how many came an hour ago to come? <laughs> um, oh, anyway. All right. Uh, what are we dealing with here? Uh, number nine, on what basis do we stake our claim to be in the right? Luther says, but whatever concerns themselves, this they approve and affirm, and by this means they create wavering and doubting consciences, having a doctrine shaken by the wind, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. Um, what, he's, what Luther is driving at is, you know, we, we raise the question, you know, how is it that we are able to know that we are right? Now, that, that sounds like a very arrogant thing, doesn't it? But Luther is driving at this. When you are dealing with things that are spiritually wrong, you will always find that there's an element of doubt. It always creates doubt. You can't gain certainty. Now, now the, the Roman Catholic doctrine says that you are basically saved. God's grace helps you. They call it grace. It's like electricity that moves the motor. Electricity of grace moves you to start doing things that you can, that you can do to save yourself. Um, how could anybody ever be certain that they could go to heaven? They don't ever know if they've done enough. 
So what they do is they create a spiritual bank. And those are the, what they call the treasury of merits. That's like guys like St. Augustine or uh, St. Bernard or somebody like that who have done more than enough to gain heaven. And so they then take the extra and they put it into the bank. And then the church is the, is the, is the broker. And they will give out uh, the benefits of these tre this treasury of merit. But you can never know whether or not you've ever had enough. And even in some of their literature, they'll say not even the Pope can know whether or not he can go to heaven. That they leave you in doubt. Well, what does that tell you? So God's a God of doubt? Or can you rely upon what God's Word says and that God is faithful to His Word? So we know truth, by, in a sense, by the fruits that come from it, the certainty. He says, so it is today with all the papists, Sacramentarians, these are the people who denied the uh, baptism of the Lord's Supper. The Anabaptists, these, uh, at, the, nowadays we would call them Mennonites and, and Quakers and, or Mennonites and uh, Amish and such. They come out of that tradition, but they weren't pacifists back then. The Anabaptists were actually interested in revolution and they would take over like the city of Munster they took it over and they tried to be able to say the kingdom of God is going to come to this place on earth now. And all these people in the end died in Munster, these Anabaptists. Everybody wanted to get rid of them. The Roman Catholics and the Lutherans didn't agree on much, but they did agree on the fact that the Anabaptists were bad news. And the Anabaptists ended up having to either being uh, killed or they had to actually uh, flee. Many of them came to the United States and we have... Uh, many of their descendants today. But any, Luther was saying, there's no certainty there. I can get them all to reply to me with regard to a specific Bible passage, but they always move back to something else because they themselves are unsure. This is miserable and a dreadful thing to teach uncertainties in public. Beware of preaching something of which you have not become sure yourself. It is your duty to build on a solid rock. If you have any doubts, present them as doubts. Luther is saying, like he will say in some text, I think that it means this. And so he will, he, he will honestly say the text isn't infinitely clear. Now, one of the marks, by the way, of a cult is that a cult always builds its doctrine off of unclear passages and it rejects as unclear passages that are clear. For instance, Roman, the Mormon church uh, teaches that people should stay away from the book of Romans because, you know, things like, you know, that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ and things like, you know, those are, huh? I don't understand that one. It's just it's so difficult to understand that. And, but if you're, if you're, uh, if you're going to say, for instance, Take a passage from 1 Corinthians uh, where Paul says, why else are they baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead be not raised? Oh, that's clear for the Mormons because that means that they can be baptized by proxy for people who are dead, even though it's not taught anywhere in all of Scripture, but because their prophet took that very dark passage. Now, the word there, he pair, baptized above the dead, probably meant that they were actually going and putting their baptismal font, as you find sometimes like in even St. Peter's in Rome, over the grave of somebody who was a saint. And you, when you were baptized, it was a statement of the resurrection. But it's, we don't know. 
And that passage is one of those passages that you say, we've got to look at the rest of Scripture to see if we can understand it. But you will always find that a sect goes to dark passages, and they try to make them into light, and they take the light passages, and they make them dark. Hence, he who does not hear the word of God always has one God after another in Rome's hither and yon. When the words are changed, God is changed in us. On the other hand, when the words remain the same, God remains the same in us. And there's something, we've got a long story here, but it's something to be said for the fact that um, uh, C.S. Lewis once said that the church should change its liturgy a word here and a word there every hundred years or so. And you say, what does that mean? He's saying that there needs to be constancy. How many of us are praying the Lord's Prayer and refuse to pray it any other way but that King James way? Right? So here we are, you, 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 and we get to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Do we even use those words anymore? No. But we want our prayer to be the same. Why not the liturgy? Why not our hymnody? You can add to it, but why not preserve it? Well, okay. We, our God keeps changing. Quickly, quickly, quickly. Our vicar is going to make an announcement here in a bit. Is God also in control of the ungodly world? Quite frankly, number 10, yes. <laughs> We're coming to the end of our study here, so we have, have to move quickly. What changes were in store for Israel in this chapter, in chapter 11? But you have burdened me, that is, all things you have done are sins, thereby you have turned me into a... Oh, this, that's what it is that we should watch out for. Uh, what happens is, um, Luther says, we have to be careful that we don't turn God into our slave, that, we, that he would serve us. What does that mean? How often have not people said, I don't understand why it is that God is doing what he's doing, if he's a gracious God. He, is, uh, he didn't hear what I was asking him to do. Do we pray, thy will be done? Don't we? Isn't his will maybe even supreme to our own? But he says we've got to be careful that we don't turn God into somebody who serves us rather than the other way around. Okay. And um, so recalling of the things of the past, he says, well, he says all those things. Okay. Abbreviation. What is the dangerous error that we must not commit? Okay. Okay. Um, Vicar, Vicar, you want to come up here and you want to uh, make a case for yourself? Okay. Just speak loud enough, yeah, they'll hear. Okay, so um, for all of us members who are uh, either single or newly married, um, which I don't know how many of you that qualify for that category, but uh, on the 31st of uh, this month, uh, we're going to have a dinner uh, outing at uh, Granite City in Carmel. Uh, I've got uh, a tentative reservation for a certain number, but we can always increase or decrease you know, um, in case we're available. Uh, 7 p.m., uh, this dinner out, the fellowship uh, gets to know each other, talk. Um, 
hoping it's going to be an ongoing monthly event. Uh, but there's a sign-up sheet on the table. It has the Advent uh, cards on it. Um, you could go and sign up. Uh, maybe, maybe there's an email to contact. Uh, let me know if you can be there. That way I can adjust the reservation as need be. Uh, 31st at 7 o'clock. Um, so be a good time. Hope to see you there. All right. There we go. Okay. Well, with, uh, with that in mind, um, let's, um, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Savior, we pray that we may remain your faithful people and that you, as our Redeemer and our Savior, would lead us through the water and the fire, that we may, as Christians, though tested by trial and tribulation, that we may always remain faithful, that you would, in that time of tribulation, demonstrate to us that the Holy Spirit is greater than our own wills and that your will is manifested in our faith. Grant unto us, we pray, as your church, the desire, the passion to be able to be your witnesses in the world. Give us the courage to be able to say what the world does not want to hear, that we are not righteous on our own, but rather that our righteousness can only come from you, but that when it comes from you, it is a perfect righteousness that avails before God on the day of judgment, and that we as Christians can live our lives with the certainty and the knowledge that there is nothing that can happen to us for which our God will not take care of us. Lord, help us to remember you, to remember this time in our life, to become the light that you want us to be upon the hill. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.